where other media organizations leave off. And we're always interested to hear from you. Now this week, I just mentioned, delighted to be joined once again by uh, our great friend, journalist and author, Gideon Levy. We were just speculating. I think we talked the last time we were speaking was a couple of months ago and Gideon was saying, what's happened, what's changed? And we suddenly realized huge things have changed actually, even if sometimes it all seems a bit slow. But Gideon, of course, writes a weekly column for Heretz, focuses on the Israeli occupation frequently and in the Palestinian ter territories. He's won prizes for his articles on human rights. Uh, and uh, he once said, I was, I, was, I, was looking, I was looking something up the other day and I got this wonderful quote uh, uh, from Gideon when he said, uh, when I first started covering the West Bank for Heretz, I was young and brainwashed. Uh, I'd see settlers cutting down olive trees and soldiers mistreating Palestinian women at the checkpoints. And I'd think these are exceptions not part of government policy. And it took me a long time to see that actually these were not accepted, that kind of bravery, that kind of incisiveness that has earned Gideon Levy rightly, the respect that he has throughout the Middle East and beyond. I'm Mark Seddon. Uh, I was uh, Al Jazeera's UN correspondent when Al Jazeera first uh, set up back in 2005. And I've subsequently worked at the United Nations for the Secretary. Gideon, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to see you again. Um, Welcome back to Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, we do, of course, want to hear from as many of you out there as possible. So please send in your questions to Gideon as we get underway. Let us know who you are, where you're, uh, where you're calling from, and uh, Tel Aviv. And uh, today we're going to really focus in particular, I think, on the Israeli elections and their aftermath, what they meet, and also the upcoming Palestinian elections and what they mean. Uh, we are looking, I think, where we're standing today at the round of, and Gideon can correct us if we're wrong, but a kind of fairly inconclusive uh, election in Israel, uh, in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, actually having to present himself uh, to court. Uh, Jewish citizens, a little bit less for its Palestinian citizens, but it is at the same time a brutal military tyranny over the West Bank, and in many ways also for, over Gaza. What kind of democracy is this? Having said this, let's speak now about this liberal democracy for, for the Jewish people. It is still quite solid, but it has some cracks, and uh, there is a danger that those cracks will get wider and wider. But unlikely, my friends in the, in the Israeli left, who are so concerned and, and, and alarmed by what Netanyahu is doing to Israeli democracy, I keep on reminding myself and, and the others, my fellow Israelis, that we are not a democracy. I mean, you know, you had the same argument, I guess, in South Africa. They had elections. The whites went to elections and you could call it a democracy. Was South Africa a democracy? It was a democracy for its white community, and therefore it was not a democracy. Tell us, though, Gideon, I mean, you made the comparison there with South Africa, um, but, but, you know, people could argue and say, well, actually, in Israel itself, uh, if you're a Palestinian uh, and an Israeli citizen, uh, you too can vote. And in fact, there are uh, Arab parties represented in the Knesset. So they would say, well, that's not necessarily 
a fair comparison to make. What would you say to that? First of all, it is true. Factually, it is true. The problem is that uh, Israeli Arabs are quite excluded from the political game and deeply discriminated, and we see it now. But formally, you're right. They can vote. They are elected. They are part of the Israeli parliament. And they might play a bigger role in the very soon future. But until now, they were always excluded. People say, no, we don't have 120 MKs, members of Knesset. We have practically 102 or 105. And the other 15s are not being counted at all, the Israeli-Palestinians. But again, yes, formally, it is a democracy also for them. They gain many rights. They just live under very, very deep uh, discrimination in any field of life. But their situation is so much better than the brothers under the military occupation. Well, Gideon, I was going to ask you about that, because clearly um, Palestinians under military occupation can't vote in Israeli elections. But is it the case that settlers in the West Bank are able to vote in Israeli elections? But that's the absolute proof for, for having an apartheid system. You go to the West Bank, you see two villages. One village is participating in the Israeli elections, and the village next by is not part of those elections, only because of the ethnic um, identity. I mean, those are Jews, those are Palestinians. Jews in the West Bank have all the rights as any Israeli elsewhere. Palestinians in the West Bank have no rights whatsoever. And in many cases, it's physically two neighboring villages. Gideon, I mean, there's one or two questions coming in from uh, some of our viewers, and we'll go to those in a minute. But I wanted to ask you about Benjamin Netanyahu uh, as an individual. Um, it seems extraordinary to those on the outside to see this extremely powerful prime minister who keeps managing somehow to cobble together coalitions, to avoid prosecution for this or that, but to be humbled in a way um, on, uh, well, I think just two days ago, by having to appear in person in court, if only very briefly, because he then disappeared. But for those of us outside looking in, can you explain to us what's really going on? What is Netanyahu being accused of? And who are his defenders? And how does he manage to hang on politically? So first of all, Israel's politics goes for in the recent year or two, two years, only on one issue. Yes, Bibi, or no Bibi. There's no other issue on the table. And the Israelis are really deeply divided between those two camps. His followers who would go after him no matter what, and his, uh, his critics who hate him in a way that no other Israeli prime minister was ever hated like this. I, by the way, think that both are wrong. He is not the Messiah that his followers present him, but he's also not the Satan that my friends in the left describe. 
I think that he did some good things and some bad things, and we should judge him for both, which we don't, by the way. If you, you mentioned before the vaccinations, I think the vaccinations was an extraordinary achievement, personal achievement of his. Israel is leading in, in, in any figure of, of numbers of vaccination long time ago. So by the end of the day, the main problem is that he faces charges in court and it doesn't make any sense that the prime minister who faces charges in court and quite severe one can continue to be prime minister. The problem is that the law allows it. Uh-huh. I mean, it's unacceptable. No doubt it is unacceptable. This man will be busy now in his trial. The, the court meets three days a week. Israel is facing so many uh, challenges and he will be busy with his uh, personal uh, problems. And he recruits all Israeli politics for this. But unfortunately, the law allows it. And yes, he is a very powerful and impressive statesman, maybe also a very powerful crook, but you can't take from him what, what belongs to him. In the same time, the other camp, namely the Zionist left, is really in a total vacuum, without leadership, without way, without ideology. The only thing that defines them now is being anti-Bibi. Mm-hmm. That's not enough. That's not an agenda. That's, I, I want to come back to you on that, Gideon, a bit later on, actually, because um, it is very interesting to see how the Israeli Labour Party in particular seems to have lost its working class base, um, in, in a way that's happened to many social democratic parties in, in Europe as well. But look, I want to come, if I may, to um, some of our um, our guests. John Whitbeck in Paris. Um, John wants to know, how likely is it that Netanyahu will secure his immunity from prosecution by being elected president and that right-wing and extreme right-wing parties will then form a stable coalition government? Look, there are many possibilities right now, and none of the possibilities seems very probable. This is one of the scenarios which was was mentioned. Uh, It has many obstacles. Above all, we don't know yet, legally, if someone who is in court now facing a trial can become president. Uh, Israeli law never thought about this possibility that someone who faces charges will become the citizen number one. On the other hand, there is nothing clear about about preventing it. So we don't even know if it is possible. The coming weeks will show if if anything will come out, if uh, Netanyahu would step down one way or the other, as a president or as a private citizen, then the solution is very clear. There is a very clear majority for the right in in the last elections. Over 70 seats are right-wingers, and then they'll have their own right-wing government, which uh, will be very stable. I mean... The other interesting thing for for people who who follow elections and different electoral systems um, is that uh, Israel uh, enjoys, or maybe 
you, you think that it may not enjoy it, a system of proportional representation. And so you have this extraordinary situation whereby uh, there are lots of small parties that are able to wield a huge amount of power, um, unlike Italy, uh, where the prime minister changes with uh, as much regularity as the weather. Um, this system in Israel still seems to result in Prime Minister Netanyahu winning most elections in recent years, but enormous powers being um, wielded by these smaller parties. Can you tell us something about this proportional system? And can you tell us something about the political parties that Netanyahu or not Netanyahu may have to rely on to form the next government? Look, the, the, the only government that uh, Netanyahu can form, all their candidates can form, will be a government of extreme polls, contradicting polls. And therefore, it's almost impossible mm -hmm. because the right-wingers will not go with the two Arab lists and, the Arab li and without the Arab list, nobody has a government. And then there are those who are very committed to ban Netanyahu. And then there are those who are very committed to go with Netanyahu whatever war. At least one party will have to break its word to, to betray its, its followers, its voters, in order to create a government. Will it happen? I'm not very sure. Now, we have now in the Israeli parliament 13 parties, a parliament of 120 members with 13 different lists, which is quite crazy. But the, the main problem is that the big parties in the past, Likud and Labour, both of them decreased very much, mainly, as you mentioned, Mark, Labour. Labour had in its good times 40 seats. They hardly have now seven seats. So it's all put into small fractions, and the outcome is instability. But as I said before, if Netanyahu will step down in one way or the other, the picture will be very different. Then you get a very stable government. Not a very favorable one, by the way. Maybe even a worse government than the one that Netanyahu led. But it will be stable. So is, is there a possibility that if Netanyahu um, is unable to form a government and no other leader can form a government, that there is yet another election in Israel in the next few months? Nothing more possible than this. If there will be another deadlock, and by the way, Netanyahu is quite interested in this, because then he can continue to be prime minister for another half a year. And for him, the main, main, main challenge is to stay in power. Because as acting prime minister, he gains different position in court rather than a, a, an ex-Prime Minister. There are some comments coming in. Um, one, and I have to say, Gideon, um, David Seddon is no relation of mine. Uh, but he is a, <laughs> David has joined us. David is actually, um, I was one of his pupils at university many, many years ago. Anyway, David, David Seddon actually looks younger than me. But David says, um, 13 parties seems unlucky. And all of this seems to be a question of counting how many angels are dancing on the head of a pin. 
there's a question here from Wally Yazbak in uh, Atlanta. Wally says, uh, hi, Gideon. What do you think of what Kahanis Mutrich, I hope I've got the, the uh, pronunciation right, said today about Arabs who do not believe Israel is a pure Jewish state and that they will be removed from Israel? Uh, did, I mean, I, I hadn't heard that, but uh, had you heard that? Sure. It's a big mess here about it because uh, tomorrow is Holocaust Day and this guy used nothing but a Nazi language. And to do it on the Holocaust Day is really outrageous. Uh, this was a very, very clear threat to transfer the Palestinians from Palestine as clear as it can get. Very, very disturbing on the Holocaust day. But on the other hand, I always prefer them transparent and telling what they think rather than covering it up. And I think we Israelis and you Europeans and Americans and elsewhere should face reality. Israel had has at least one neo-Nazi party in the parliament. Israel has quite a big number of racists, of really extreme racists, that in no country in Europe would join any government. No country in Europe would have offered a Smotrich to be part of the coalition. In Israel, he is legitimated enough to become part of the government. The world should know it. Israel is ready to go for a government with a neo-Nazi partner. Can you tell us something a little bit more um, about that neo-Nazi party? There's been a little bit of um, information in some of the Western media about it, but we don't really know here about uh, the strength of support it enjoys. How popular is that racist uh, view amongst uh, Israelis? Um, and, you know, how many, you know, the leadership of this party, who they are, where they represent? I mean, it would be fascinating to know more. Their center is obviously in the settlements and mainly in the young, wild settlements, not the well-established but those who are called in Israel the illegal outposts, it's obviously a wrong uh, definition because there is no legal settlement according to the international law. But in Israeli uh, jargon, in Israeli language, uh, they are the illegal outposts and those are second or third generation of settlers who are really breaking any rule, including against the older generation of settlers. Nobody, I mean, they, they are very powerful, they are armed, they are in many ways militias. They threaten and beat and shoot Palestinians on a daily basis. And they are the real uh, ruling power in the West Bank. And their representative in the parliament is based on a very extreme religious point of view, together with a very extreme nationalistic point of view. And uh, some of them are very uh, talented guys, including 
Bezalel Smotrich that you just mentioned. Uh, there were times in which Israel, including the Likud party, would boycott such parties like Kahana, if you remember him. Mm-hmm. They are Kahana's followers, Kahana's pupils, and nobody boycotts them. And this is what, what worries me so much. The fact that they have legitimacy, like in no other place in the world, they could have gained the same legitimacy. Gideon, I'm very interested in, in hearing you talk about this. I mean, and as you were, as you were, as you were telling us about uh, these uh, militia, these political militia groups, if you like, I was transported back to the, to the Capitol Hill and some of the Trumpian militias that we witnessed, armed militias, and then I was transported back to the, some of the settlers in Rhodesia and um, amongst the uh, Afrikaners in South Africa, right out at the sharp end, where they were often the most extreme. Um, and it is uh, it is quite a revelation, uh, and it'll be something I think that we should, um, you know, as Palestine deep dive, uh, return to. But um, I just also wanted to ask you about, since we are focusing particularly on Israel and the elections and the aftermath, I did want to ask you about the Arab parties, the Palestinian parties, and what it must be a very difficult role for them within the Knesset. Um, there are obviously different shades of bad for them. Um, and presumably it's very, very difficult for uh, any Palestinian politician in Israel, in Israel to actually say, well, I'm going to go into government with this particular group or that particular group. But um, tell us something about uh, the joint list, if you will. Tell us something about um, Palestinian political organization in Israel. And also, you know, how, how does it work with uh, Palestinian leadership in the occupied territories, or do they just have to operate separately? So first of all, the joint list uh, was really defeated in those elections. It's very hard to understand why they didn't deserve it, because they did a very good job, but they were really defeated. There were 15 seats in the former parliament, and they dropped into six seats. The joint list. Now, what happened that uh, Netanyahu, who is a very gifted manipulator, succeeded somehow to make a split in the joint list and to separate the Islamist party, because the joint list was combined from four parties. One party left, the Islamist party, and in a very paradoxical way, they joined somehow the Israeli Jewish right-wingers, mainly Netanyahu. In any case, the voters of the joint list were very, very frustrated from this division. And they punished their, their, government, their party, not that I understand why. Because finally, it's legitimate that communists and leftists and seculars will not go with an Islamist party. Mm-hmm. And what's wrong if they split it? But no, the Israeli voters, Israeli Arab voters couldn't accept it. And they just stayed home and didn't go to vote. It's only about 50% who went to vote among the Israeli Arabs, which is really very regrettable because now their power is much smaller. Now, there is very little contact or linkage between Israeli-Palestinian politics and Palestinian politics under the occupation. 
the issues are different. The rules of the game are, are different. They operate under occupation. Israeli Arabs don't live under occupation, not at least, not the direct military occupation. And also their agendas are different because they care more about their voters, about daily life, much less about the occupation. While the, Israel, the, the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza are much more concerned about the occupation rather than the well-being of, of each voter. So uh, not only in politics, also both societies become more and more different. There is a very deep gap between the Israeli-Palestinian community and the community which lives under the occupation. And unfortunately, this division plays to the hand of Israel and plays against the Palestinians. So another question has just come in, um, and it's, uh, it's, the question is this, which party that's been running for election uh, is particularly favored by the U US Christian evangelical uh, Zionists? Have they got a favorite? Horse in the race? They basically support the right wingers. It can be Netanyahu, it can be Don't forget that uh, part of them go to volunteer in the West Bank to help the settlers. They contribute quite big sums of money to the settlements project. So they would support either Likud or the parties which are on the right of Likud, the extreme right. And Gideon, we, we, we talked uh, a little earlier about the, um, about the Israeli Labour Party. I think back in the day, I think you worked with uh, Yitzhak Rabin. I mean, so you're... Shimon you're, Peres. Shimon Peres. Oh, Shimon Peres, I beg your pardon, with Shimon Peres. So, so you are kind of steeped in that old Israeli um, Labour Party tradition, but, uh, you know, it is quite clear that in the way that um, uh, other parties of the left have transformed in recent decades, a similar journey has been embarked upon by the Israeli Labour Party, but, but possibly even further. Um, in a way, when we were talking about the title for the show today, the uh, Great Moving Right Show, uh, we could have been talking about um, uh, the Israeli Labour Party as well. How did it manage to lose its working class base? Uh, and is as the Israeli Labour Party become a sort of prisoner of cultural identity politics as well? I mean, what are the reasons for its its weakness? It's, you were just talking about it. It's it's done even worse this time this election. Why is it so weak? Because it lost its way. Because Labour and Zionist left wants to gain everything to be an occupier and to be liberal, to have a Jewish state and a democratic state, mm. to have it all, and you can't have it all. And many years ago, the masks were torn because finally it was a masquerade. Don't forget that labor established the first settlement. Labor is responsible for the occupation much more than we could. Labour had started all this and Labour supported until this very moment. Labour is a supporter of the occupation. 
they just cover it up with all kinds of niceties, of peace processes, of peace plans. By the end of the day, they never meant it, and they never did anything about putting an end to the occupation, never. So in a way, you're, you're kind of, um, you're in a situation in Israel, whereas you, you might just as well, if you've got both major political parties essentially saying the same thing, you might Absolutely. as well vote for the ones who really believe in it. Absolutely. There is a clear wall-to-wall majority in Israel's politics for Jewish superiority, supremacy, and for continuing the occupation. Some will phrase it in a rather more pleasant way, more friendly way, but by the end of the day, who is against Jewish supremacy? Who is against the Jewish state? Which means, in this context, Jewish supremacy. What does it mean, Jewish state, when half of the population between the Jordan River and the sea are Palestinians? Half. And you call it a Jewish state. So what is it Jewish supremacy? And who is against it? No one. Which you, Gideon, in a way, this brings me on to the, to my next question as to, you know, and looking forward. Um, being devil's advocate, uh, whether Netanyahu or another person forms the next Israeli government, obviously there have been changes. Uh, there is a new uh, US president. Um, the, the deal of the century has sort of fallen around, uh, it's fallen to pieces, really. Um, the plan to annex outright um, another 30% of Palestinian land, especially in the Jordan Valley, seems to have been put on ice for the time being. But if there's a grand plan for Prime Minister Netanyahu and Likud, or, or, the, current, or the next Israeli government, does it continue down that line of uh, annexation, of essentially taking more Palestinian land, or has there been this kind of, and because you're alluding to it, this kind of realization that actually, if you do that, then you're going to have to include a lot more Palestinians within the new, a, a newly expanded Greater Israel. And if you end up one day with the Greater Israel that some people have been arguing for, then actually you've got a population, as you were just alluding to, which is half and half, or possibly even slightly more Palestinian than Jewish. So what is the plan? Where, where does this all go? Where does it all go next? First of all, the reality that you described as a future reality is the reality in the last 53 years. We are living in a one state for 53 years. The occupation never meant to be a temporary phenomenon. And therefore, the, the, the tomorrow is already here. <clears throat> and this uh, de devastating reality that you described exists already. It's not like you need some plan to reach it. We are there. Even when you speak about expansion, Israel expanded itself. I mean, you don't need much more. You don't need legal the resolutions, because by the end of the day, the West Bank is part of Israel. If you declared it or if you didn't declare it, the green light line is dead long time ago. And therefore, we are facing an irreversible reality long time ago. 
Now there is no plan. The plan is to gain more time and to establish the occupation and to strengthen it and to deepen it in many ways. In certain areas, Israel is transferring silently, like in the Jordan Valley and in South Hebron. You know, they push the peasants, they push the shepherds, the weakest parts of society, they push them out from their land. They push them out from the lands through the settlers in the West Bank in many places. It's a slow growing process which never stops and will never stop unless something will happen. You don't need a plan for this. It is already being uh, uh, committed. It is there. People think that it's all temporary. It is not. It cannot be temporary. And therefore, when it comes to this, you see very, very little differences between left and right and Israel. By the end of the day, they support the same. I, I see what you're saying, Gideon. I can see um, how this is a long-standing process of attrition, if you like. Um, I can understand also why um, Israeli politicians might actually step back from the idea of annexing all of the West Bank, for instance, because suddenly you've got an awful lot of Palestinians. So it's a, a slow process. But I suppose at the end of it, there are still millions of Palestinians in the occupied territories uh, and in Israel. And you can't drive them all out if that's really the intention. So someone like Netanyahu, if he had a grander vision, if he was a bigger person, he might, like his predecessor, Mr. Rabin, or Mr. Perez actually think, well, I have this power. I'm going to leave office sooner or later. Why don't I try and, and reach some sort of long lasting resolution? Is there any chance of that? Or is that just complete naivety? There's no chance for this whatsoever because Mr. Netanyahu doesn't believe in it. It's even not because of his political calculations. He really sincerely doesn't believe in any kind of settlement with the Palestinians. He believes that Israel should live only on its own, that Israel can trust only its own military force. He doesn't trust the Palestinians. He will never do. And therefore, and above all, maybe his biggest achievement was to put off the table the whole issue of the Palestinian problem. We are talking about it, but in Israel, nobody discusses it. Nobody bothers to talk about it. And even the world lost patience and lost interest, as you know. And this, <coughs> this is maybe his biggest uh, achievement, to put off the Palestinian issue off the table. Does this make Benjamin Netanyahu and people like him racist? I think that anyone who supports the continuance of the Jewish supremacy in Israel, in the West Bank, in Palestine, is a racist by definition, which means the Zionism is a racist movement. Yes, as long as it is supporting Jewish supremacy, it declares itself, it defines itself as a racist movement, racist ideology, no doubt. Well, that's very clear, Gideon. 
Um, I've just, we've, we've focused very much on the Israeli elections. Um, we were talking right at the very beginning about how sometimes things don't really often seem <clears throat> to change, but do change. Uh, and of course, we are looking too ahead at um, the elections uh, for the Palestine Authority. Uh, for the first time in a long time, there are going to be elections. And there's a range of quite interesting candidates um, emerging, including Marwan Boguti, who's in prison. I mean, do you th what what difference do you think um, an open Palestinian election could have, which throws up a refreshed uh, uh, new leadership? What difference could it make? I'm not sure it can do a big difference because first of all, let's remember those are elections under occupation. And the elections under occupation are not free elections. Mm. Israel already started to arrest Hamas candidates and threaten them in the West Bank. So what kind of elections are they? The fact that the Palestinians desperately need a new leadership and desperately need unification is not enough. And I don't see that those elections, first of all, we are not 100% sure that the elections will take place. I mean, everything goes toward it, but something can still stop it. And secondly, there will not be free elections. And thirdly, the old guard is powerful enough, both in Hamas and in Fatah, to maintain its power. And then you don't get any change. So you kind of foresee a kind of stasis, not much change there, not much refreshing. Unfortunately. Which is... Uh, I which mean, I, I, I think that would Baraguti be elected, this could be a game changer. But uh, even in the, in the list to the, to the parliament, he doesn't run. He has his representatives, but he didn't declare himself as a candidate. And it's also quite complicated to be a candidate in jail for many more years. So I really don't know where we will go, but I don't have too many expectations there. The, obviously, the international situation has changed. Uh, President Biden is not going to roll everything Trump did back, clearly. You know, he's not going to move the embassy back from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. Uh, there's even been some dancing around the kind of language that's going to be used. Um, however, you know, there's a return to sort of rather tire, tired, old, but safe uh, commitments such as the two-state solution, which even those who speak about it really in their hearts probably don't believe believe will be the case will ever happen but i mean looking ahead and looking around the world um where do you think the new support is going to come from for justice for palestinians for um an equitable uh, secular democratic one state solution where is it going to come from it can't all it can't all just be dead and buried, can it? I mean, it's not all It's all not all not doom and gloom. There must be hope. So where's it going to come from, do you think? First of all, we couldn't see it coming in other tyrannies. Nobody had foreseen the fall of Soviet Russia, 
Nobody had foreseen the fall of the Berlin Wall or, or the apartheid system in South Africa. It happened within months when nobody expected it. So this should give us some kind of hope that many times the unexpected is happening. Secondly, the only source of hope right now, right now, I emphasize, are not governments, but civil society, NGOs, groups, media, mainly in the West, mainly in Europe and in the United States. And you see and you hear new voices and new commitments. You see in the campuses in the United States a major shift, even among the Jewish community in the United States, part of it. It's a very long way to go, but it should start somewhere. And unfortunately, I can guarantee you one thing, it will not start in Israel. Well, I mean, there is a question. It's, uh, you know, it, it, when, we, when we look at the situation in Ireland and despite the Good Friday Agreement and peace, you know, under, the, there are always undercurrents of, of violence. I mean, and, and this is, we're not talking necessarily about state violence. We're talking about the reactions of different communities that sometimes express themselves through violence. And so this question here, do you see a future possibility of an externally financed armed insurrection or revolt such as the IRA in Ireland or Ergun uh, under the uh, Palestine, British Palestine uh, mandate. Do you see that as a possibility? We had it. What was the uprising? What was the first intifada? What was the second intifada? What were all those uh, fighting organizations? But Israel succeeded to crash them down. And right now, I don't see them recovering because they lack a spirit of struggle, they lack leadership, they lack unity. And I don't see it happening in the short run. For the long run, maybe yes. I Look, by the end of the day, it must be very clear to every one of us that as long as Israel is not paying a price for the occupation, Israel will not change. And the only way to make it, changing yeah. its policy, will be by forcing it. Well, Gideon, I, I, it's, a, it's a point. It's a point well made because um, Peter Borkovitz uh, has written, and he says, uh, you know, back in the day, there were those that said that if the United States withdrew support for Israel, both military and financial, the situation would change drastically. Um, and he says, you know, would that be the case? Today, well, I'm sure you would say, well, yes, of course it would be, but it's unlikely to happen. However, what's been very interesting, and you will have seen this, is there's been a sea change in American public opinion. Um, there is much less automatic support for um, uh, you know, the billions that are given to Israel each year for um, in terms of military support. So might that be an area which changes? Look, until now, we faced only changes in rhetoric which are not unimportant, but are far off being enough. Yes, the Biden administration, like the Obama administration before, used a different language toward Israel. You see the cold shoulder that Biden is showing to Netanyahu. I mean, he hardly talked with him ever since he was elected. And you see a very, very cold atmosphere. 
But in the same time, the United States continues to support Israel. You know, uh, President uh, Barack Obama, who was maybe the first American president whose heart was in the right place when it comes to the Middle East, he offered Israel the biggest military aid more than any other American president. So what does it mean, all those condemnations and, and unpleasant atmosphere, if by the end of the day, the United States continue to support Israel? So yes, there are changes, and we feel them now from day to day. But as long as it will not be accompanied by actual deeds, sanctions, then it's meaningless. I mean, I, I suspect that confidence must be a little bit shaken within the Israeli establishment uh, with what's been happening. And also because, you know, some of the more far reaching um, aims uh, of uh, trying to bring the United States to take military action against Iran, the, the great support that was given to Trump over his uh, early decision to rip up the uh, JCPOA agreement with Iran, for instance, this kind of um, politicking that Netanyahu has played quite brilliantly in many respects uh, with the United States and with some Gulf states, of course, that have now signed uh, peace treaties, the UAE being one of them. Um, that's been a bit d disrupted and derailed, hasn't it? So there must be, it must have sown a bit of confusion. Add to this the ICC, which we didn't mention. Ah. It also scratches Israel a little. But as I say, those are all promising beginnings, but they are only beginnings. The way is still very, very long. And as I say, right now we see small differences, minor differences, maybe mainly rhetoric ones, diplomatic ones, that are far of big enough. Well, Gideon, you were talking earlier about um other examples in history of change when it's uh, least expected happening. I remember as a schoolboy sending my pocket money to, um, I hope it got there, I don't know if it did, but to Joshua Nkomo. Uh, he was then the leader of uh, ZAPU, the Zimbabwe African People's Union. Sure. Nobody when I was a youngster thought that, um, well, they thought that perhaps Rhodesia's UDI wouldn't hold out, but they never thought that uh, South African apartheid would uh, fall in on itself, but it did. Uh, they never, as you said, thought that the Berlin Wall would come down and Germany would be reunited and there'd be free and fair elections right across um, Eastern Europe. So these are very quite dramatic things that can happen. And um, I think the fact that we are able to have this discussion here tonight and to have so many people sending in questions and to be able to probe and to get to the truth is really very important because... A lot of this will be shared, this material, and your insights, Gideon, are extremely valuable for understanding the situation. Um, we don't really get an awful lot, despite the power of our media and the extent of our media and also social media, the kind of intelligent, dispassionate analysis that we've uh, experienced this evening. So, you know, Gideon, I'd just like to thank you. Thank you very much again for, for joining us. It's been great to have you. We'd love to have you on again. See what's happened in a in a few uh, in a few weeks' time, perhaps. Um, David Seddon, not related, I have to say. 
I told you that earlier. He says thanks to Gideon. Other people are saying thank you very much, as I say thank you. And I say thank you also to Alex Bustos, who has stepped in this evening into the breach and has been operating the system. And thank you for everybody um, involved with Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, so from Gideon, um, oh, Gemma, she just says, thank you very much. Yes, only the beginnings, but there is hope. What a good note to end on. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you, Gideon. And from us, goodbye. Goodbye, and thank you for having me. All the best.